Welcome back to Joan's Take on the Chosen. We are looking at season three, episode eight, the finale called Sustenance. And it is a full episode, so we're going to get right into it. And in the chat beforehand, I asked you if you had a favorite part of the episode. And not surprisingly, a lot of you said Jesus and Simon. And you had some great insights that I'm going to try to remember when um, we get to that part of the episode. But, you know, I I think a lot of us expected to... Um, to think that the multiplication of the loaves and fishes was going to be the big moment, was going to be the favorite moment. And I, we were all surprised, and I'm going to talk to you about it when we get there. I think a lot of us were surprised that maybe that wasn't our favorite moment, and maybe our favorite moment was this walking on the water. And I, I, I really related to Thomas when Thomas said, I can't believe this is the second most amazing thing I've seen today or something. Um, so... Let's go ahead and get started. Um, it's really great to see you all. Hi, Jackie and Wendy and Katie and Renee and Honey Joe and everybody that's here. So this is great. So it opens up. Um, ooh, James says the theme of the season, what about me? That's fantastic. You know, uh, Dallas says that the theme of the season was kind of come to me, all you who are labored and are weary, and I will give you rest. But James, I think you're absolutely right that so much of this was what about me and looking at others that we're going to talk about, like looking at others and what Jesus is doing for others. And, you know, I, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but that's so great, um, James, that you said that, because if you think about it, like Bar like certain people were really excited that other people were being cured, like Barnaby wasn't asking for a cure for himself, right? So he didn't have this idea that, um, what about me? He, but some people did. And it's, it, it's a, again, it's a good examination for con of conscience for us to say, what's my, when I see God working in someone's life, am I, do I think, why doesn't he do that for me? Or am I like Barnaby where I'm like, of course he's not doing it for me. He should do it for those people. And then he ends up doing it for me. That's, it's really powerful. And I, I had not thought about that. And I hadn't really thought about like Barnaby and Shula, but it's all coming to me now. So, so that's, that's really great. Um, so yeah. And Eden and yeah, absolutely. And Jackie, Jackie says she wasn't very impressed with actually the two miracles. It was more the dynamic between Jesus and Simon. And I think that's a good point too. So, okay, let's jump right in because it was a, a really powerful beginning and end. I think the sandwich We've seen in the past, Dallas and the writers begin the episode with an Old Testament foreshadowing or an Old Testament connection. And this is, correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is the first time that we've had it as a sandwich, where we have this flashback. You know, if you think about it, the very first episode of season one started with Mary Magdalene's childhood. Um, and we had some flashbacks to that. But, um, you know, when he started with other things from the Old Testament, like David and the, the showbread, or the David and the bread of the presence, he doesn't go back to that. So I think this is the first episode that kind of sandwiches the episode with this Old Testament scene. And I really loved it. Um, to tell you the truth, Psalm 77 isn't a psalm that I'm used to praying. It's not a psalm that came immediately to me. 
Um, you know, like I didn't say, oh, this is Psalm 77. Some of the Psalms I'm praying with, with the Liturgy of the Hours and, and, um, but Psalm 77 wasn't as familiar to me as some of the other Psalms. And I really, it really resonated me with me and I really want to pray with it now. It's a beautiful Psalm and it kind of, you know, again, forms the frame of this, um, this episode. Uh, Katie points out the beginning of the season when we saw of season two, right? We saw John interviewing people for his gospel. You're right. And that was a flash forward. Does it end? Does, does the episode end with that too? I don't remember that. Katie's watched all the seasons, all the episodes much uh, more recently than me. Um, Wendy says Psalm 77 is so lenty. You're right. It is very lenty. So we have this, this scene of David and Bathsheba. And, and they choose to interpret Asaph. So Psalm 77 is preceded by a Psalm of Asaph. And they choose to um, interpret that, that that was a man in David's court who, you know, conducted the choir. So where does this come from? The sons of Asaph was a Levitical, um, like a guild of, of, of singers who would sing at the temple. And, um, and so Asaph would have been the beginning of this. And um, Dr. Hahn in his Bible, uh, his Bible encyclopedia says he was a member of the clan of Gershom and the son of Berechiah. Asaph was named with Heman and Jeduthun by David to be the ones who should prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals in 1 Chronicles 25. So Asaph is in charge of, you know, he's, he's the one who runs the music program at the temple, okay? And so then that continues, and the sons of Asaph is kind of the choir that continues to worship in song in the temple. And so there's a lot of song psalms that are actually attributed to Asaph. And that even either, either means that Asaph wrote them, or it means that this, this guild of singers composed them. Okay, so that's who Asaph is, just to kind of put it in perspective. So we have this scene where Asaph comes and he... Um, he, you know, presents this new psalm, which is really, really beautiful. Psalm 77 reminded me of a Todah psalm. It's um, not strictly a Todah psalm, but I think it could be classified as one. So Todah psalms are th psalms of thanksgiving that were part of the Todah sacrifice in the temple where you um, made um, you you made this sacrifice and it was in the moment of death. So you, or a moment of, of danger of death. So in danger of death, you said, if I am rescued from this, I will make a todah. I will make a Thanksgiving offering in the in this temple. And that todah offering then would be made in the temple. And it's the only offering where you are presented in the temple with lamb and then bread. And then um, the bread is actually eaten both by the priests and you with your family at home when you, um, sorry, the lamb is, is then celebrated. This meal is celebrated at home with your family where you recount what the Lord has done for you. So there's a number of psalms that are Todah psalms, and the Todah psalms traditionally begin in distress and end in blessing, which is what this psalm kind of mirrors. And, and the psalm will be um, really beautifully um, forming the end of this episode as well. It's interesting, at the beginning, they skip the most emotional verses. The most emotional verses, I think, of Psalm 77 are, are 8 to 11. And so when you're following along, they skip 8 to 11 and they go to 12 and you're like, if you're following along in your, in your Bible, when you're watching this episode, you're like, but eight and 11, like those are the best verses. Well, you're going to get them at the end of the episode. So, um, they, they skip to the, the remembrance part, um, recounting what the Lord has done. So 
Um, so, okay. So now we have Jesus in the Decapolis and um, Renee, the choir was good. It reminds me of chant music a little. Yes. And I haven't pursued this, but the Psalms, I haven't pursued this kind of research, but liturgical, I'm sure liturgical musicians um, in the church will know more than me. There is some thought that Gregorian chant is actually the closest we have now to what the chanting of the Psalms would have sounded like, um, although it would have had a more Eastern, less Western tone to them. Um, and if you're familiar with Eastern music, it, it's on a different tonal scale. Um, again, I'm not versed in this music theory and history, but there is some thought that Gregorian chant probably is the closest we have these days to what the chant would sound like of the Psalms in the temple. So we have this scene now. So we're back in the Decapolis and um, Jesus is going to somehow solve the problem by having all his, I'm sorry, I keep getting the to The chat is so good. Yes, James, you're right. The Todah is uh, the Eucharist. So the Eucharist is a Todah, is a Thanksgiving Psalm. Jesus actually, uh, I'm sorry, it's a t Thanksgiving sacrifice. Jesus actually uh, prays a Todah Psalm on the cross indicating that he is going to be saved and we celebrate this Thanksgiving sacrifice when we celebrate the Eucharist. So you're absolutely right. I should have um, pulled that together better. So thank you for uh, pointing that out. So we're back in the Decapolis and Jesus sits down, like he has his apostles sit down and it's interesting. Like why is, how is teaching his apostles going to solve anything? And it's, he's going to teach about faith and why is this important? But because Faith in Jesus is required for him to do anything, right? He repeatedly says in the scriptures, you know, how do these miracles happen? And he, re he reminds them, like, how did, how was the woman healed? It was her faith. And so how are miracles taking place? But because people had faith in him, you know, it's your faith that saves you. And there are times in the scriptures where Jesus is unable to perform miracles because they have no faith. Um, and so what Jesus has to do is there has to be faith for him to work in these people's lives. Now it's interesting. It's kind of a, um, a, uh, circular thing because one of the reasons Jesus does perform miracles during his public ministries is, is uh, during his public ministry is a way to, to cause faith, to evoke faith, right? One of the reasons he worked miracles was to increase faith. Think of Thomas at the end, um, you know, he's like, blessed are you who believed without seeing. So, you know, Jesus works these miracles to point to the greatest miracle ever, which is the healing from sin and broken and divisionness and the, the open of opening of the gates of heaven, right? Um, the healing of our original sin and our debt. So all these miracles point to that and point to what Christ is, is going to do for us on the cross. But these miracles in themselves are to increase our faith. To, to show us that Christ has come. Um, and so, you know, he, he has them sit down and he says, you know, many of you are afraid right now instead of having faith in me. And when he said that, I thought, you know, he's talking to the apostles who are fearful of the crowd that's gathering, right? They think that what is needed is physical protection for Jesus. They're worried. They feel weak now sitting down, listening. Um, and, you know, and, and as some of you are saying in the chat, you pointed out Peter is is not willing to sit down like he is. He's on edge. So he says, many of you are afraid right now instead of having faith in me. 
it's not just the apostles that are that are worried about the crowd, but also Eden and Peter. Um, they are afraid. Um, they are they are fearful. They are um, grieving. And so instead of having faith in Christ, they are concentrating on their wounds. And that's Christ needs faith from Peter, right? That's why Peter is necessary for this mission, because his person, Peter calls himself later, right? Your person, his person claims to have faith in him. But I think the big question of this episode is Peter again and again says, I have faith. I have faith. I know you're the Messiah. I know who you are. I know you are God. I ask myself again and again, and I'd be interested to see what you think in the chat. Do you think that Peter really has faith? Because if you you know who God is, but you are disagreeing with what he's doing, or you know who God is, but you don't recognize God working in your life, um, do you ha- really have faith, right? If you disagree, um, you know, Peter's faith is being tested now in this this trial with Eden. And so does he have faith? Because I think it's being tested. And I think you can question, can you believe in the Messiah out there? Like theoretically, like I believe Jesus is the Messiah, but it, maybe he's not the Messiah for me. I mean, I think that's what Peter's kind of grappling with. If he thinks I'm a mistake, he thinks the Messiah made a mistake. And so it's that whole, um, Katie, you're absolutely right. Like he believes it intellectually, but he doesn't believe it in his heart. He doesn't believe it in his being. He doesn't believe it in his actions. And so, you know, I think there's a lot of different ways we can interpret why Peter's necessary for this. And some people, and, and Christine, Christie's right. Um, you know, they just need 12 baskets. Do they just need the 12 apostles there? Um, but it's, this whole episode is about faith. And I, I think we can really struggle with, is Peter really, does he have faith? Because he doesn't trust, you know? So Jesus says, it's not about the size, Philip. It's about who your faith is in. If your faith is secure in God, trusting in his promises, choosing his will for your life instead of your own, this size faith is enough, the mustard seed, right? Um, The apostles' faith must be secure in Christ. Um, So I think that's really powerful. Like that, we could write that on 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 our bathroom mirrors to look at every day, right? If we choose his will of our life instead of our own, that's what faith really looks like. It's easy to have intellectual faith and say, I believe in God. But what about when push comes to shove and that faith is tested and we have to say, you, you are like, you are in charge. Do we have that faith? Right. Um, and I, you know, some of you have mentioned Peter's not sitting down. Peter's antsy. Peter's crouching. Notice after the man's leg is healed. So he heals that man's leg. And all the apostles are looking at Jesus smiling, except Peter, who doesn't make eye contact. He's looking down because what is this but another example of someone who's being healed when when Eden has not been healed. Right. And so there's this there's this someone just said in the chat, you're absolutely like there's this blindness of his anger. Um, Absolutely. I think he had faith, but he became disappointed in Jesus to the point he was doubting his worthiness. Right. Am I a mistake? So there's a lot that Peter's going through, and I think there's a lot we can talk about. Um, the miracle then uh, uh, makes everybody sit down and listen, right? Again, one of the reasons Christ works these public miracles is to increase faith. And so now people are willing to let him talk. Um, you know, we flash back then to Eden, 
And Zebedee and Mary and Salome are coming to Eden. The women understand what's happening. Zebedee doesn't, which makes sense, right? Um, and I think, you know, when they ask how, how can I help? Um, this is, Eden gives this great real answer. I don't know. And neither does Simon, which is our problem. Um, Simon doesn't know how to help Eden. Eden doesn't know what she needs. And, and I think that's really real when we're struggling with these issues, um, when we struggle with a cross, when we struggle with uncertainty, when we struggle with mystery, we don't know, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I just want to be whole again. I don't know what the answer is. I just don't want to be carrying this cross. Right? So I think that's really real. I love Mary's humility in this scene. Mary Magdalene, I think, really shines in the scene. Mary is a broken woman who's seen a lot, who's been through a lot, who's been healed, who's been forgiven, not once but twice. And her heart goes out to Eden as a fellow woman, but she is so humble to say, I've never been married. I'm new at this, at this following Christ thing. And, you know, but she has this understanding. She's humble that like, I, I don't know if I have answers, but she ends up having the answer in that, you know, Eden has to be able to grieve. Eden's tried to be too strong. She hasn't shared her grief. She, um, and this is very real, right? Everybody grieves differently. Everybody grieves in different stages and she hasn't shared it with her own husband. I think like not to be open to her own husband because she's tried to be strong. She's afraid that that will take him away from Jesus. She doesn't need to be strong right now, right? Um, she needs to go to her husband. She needs to go to Jesus and that's going to be her healing. And Eden compares herself to Veronica, as we know, as we've seen, and we've compared her to Veronica, Eden vocalizes that, you know, Jesus gave Veronica healing, but he hasn't given me healing. And I love Mary's response, her suggestion to go to the synagogue. Um, you know, too often we act like God didn't speak until Jesus came. And I think this was very, very, um, this was just very profound for the writers to show that you know how you received healing. You know how you received kind of this um, pre-Jesus grace, right? There was an, a type of Old Testament grace, right? By fidelity to the covenant. Like God spoke through these Old Testament rituals, this Old Testament liturgy. God set this liturgy up, right? Um, that's the beauty of liturgy is liturgy doesn't come from us. It's a sharing in what God's given us. So there aren't that many liturgical religions, but Catholicism is obviously a liturgical religion. We didn't make up the liturgy. We we share in what's God's given. And that's the difference between um, just, you know, kind of making up a ritual. No, liturgy is a sharing in what God's given us. And that's in Judaism, right? So they're not creating these random rituals, but that God's given them and they're sharing in this work of God. So I love that Mary tells her to go to the synagogue because it's a reminder to us that that is how the Jews before Christ found healing and grace. And that is how the Lord spoke. Sometimes we act like the law or the Jewish liturgy was empty or wrong, but, but that's how God worked. That's how he chose to speak and heal. And so Mary sends her back to the synagogue, like go, the scriptures will have something for you. It's not just after the time of Christ that all of a sudden now we have God speaking to us through the New Testament. No, he spoke to, a, that's how he spoke to his people. And so I love that Mary then t says, you know, go back to, go to the synagogue and, and go to the rabbis and see what the word has. See the way 
You know, it's not just a matter of waiting for Jesus to come and talk to you, but go to God in his word. And I think that's re- it was really beautiful. So I am going to go ahead and um, skip over. I'm going to skip down before I go back to the Decapolis. I want to skip down to that conversation that she has with Rabbi Yosef um, that, you know, I think there's a, there was a lot of beauty that that he's honest with her, you know, when her mother wants her to pray a joyful psalm he's on it. He's like, I, I don't, I'm not sure a joyful Psalm would be truthful. I love that. Right. Um, so often we're afraid to be honest with God. We're afraid to be vocal with God. We're afraid to be, um, vulnerable and mad. And, um, God is okay with our weak prayers of anger. (laughs) Um, you know, Jacob wrestled with the Lord and, and God's big enough. He can handle that. And so I think sometimes we try to even be strong with God and Rabbi Yusuf is helping her say like, you just need to be honest. You just need to be truthful with the Lord. And maybe Psalm 77 would be better for you to pray because it's actually what you're feeling. And that's, what's going to bring you healing is your, your truthfulness with the Lord. So I, I really loved his honesty. Um, there's a really great song I would highly recommend if you're going through kind of a dark night and um, you pray with, with, with music I would recommend um, Ellie Holcomb's song Constellations. It's like a modern day Psalm 77 where she's just crying out to the Lord and admitting that she doesn't feel him and she wants to feel him, but she's at a loss. And um, it can be very powerful to admit this to the Lord. And that's what Rabbi Yusuf is telling her to do. Um, So he tells her to pray it for Peter, which I think is really, really powerful. And so then this is when we get the part of the psalm um, skipped earlier and that really powerful emotional part of the psalm. Um, Has the Lord's mercy ceased forever? The promise to go unfulfilled for future ages. Has God forgotten how to show mercy? In anger withheld his compassion. I conclude, my sorrow is this, the right hand of the Most High has abandoned us. You know, we know that's not true, but in the darkness, in the dark night of the soul, in grief, it's, those are very real words that if you've suffered an intense grief, you've, you, you know what I mean. Those are very real words. And so to, to vocalize those, and I think it's important to pray with the Psalms because then the Psalms lead us out of that into this moment of praise. Um, but it's, it's interesting. It stops. So we have this little citation of Psalm 77, but then it stops before um, the end of the psalm, because that is going to be the end scene. So I like how they, um, you know, it stops before the water part, because um, I like how the psalm kind of accompanies this whole episode. I love the juxtaposition of the psalm with Simon working, um, because many who work for the Lord, so Simon's distributing the bread, and we're hearing the psalm prayed. And I love this, because many people who work for the Lord are struggling with these same things. Like just because your hands are working for him, just because your mind might be working for him, doesn't mean your heart is there. It's very real to have these struggles, especially when you're doing his will, especially when you're working for him, especially when you're working for maybe earthen vessels who run his church. It can be very easy to have these emotions. So I love that juxtaposition. Um, So, Sim, this 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 scene with Rabbi Yusuf, I think, is really powerful, and we'll come back to Eden 
in a minute because you know all these these scenes are are uh, juxtaposed, which I think is really beautiful. So um, okay, so back to the Decapolis, um, Eden. Um, sorry, back to the Decapolis. So um, there's this complex plot about everything going on in the Decapolis and the effects of the teaching overheard. We have Ermus the Greek and we have all these people and the way, again, they needed a way to say why these people had been homeless. Like, why are these people away from their homes? This is not the way I would have done it, but that's just my honest opinion. Um, so Jesus is teaching them and they're talking about the parable that they all struggled with. And um, I thought it was interesting when he says, everyone who believes in me is invited. I'm surprised there wasn't, um, there was somebody who shouted heresy, but I was surprised that there wasn't more of an uproar about that. Um, that's a pretty radical statement. It's not just that everybody's going to be there, but he places himself as the reason that people are invited. And um, I was surprised there wasn't more uproar about this because I think sometimes we take some of his statements for granted, knowing who he is and knowing, of course, anybody who believes in Jesus is invited. Um, he's the way, the truth, and the life. But to hear that at that time, thinking that Jesus is just this roaming rabbi who performs miracles, that's a pretty bold statement. I thought of it today in the daily mass readings when he says, basically, whatever you did for the least of my brothers, you did for me. He sets himself up, first of all, as judge of the sheep and the goats. Like he says, I will be judging the sheep and the goats and I am the person you're serving. And I think so often, again, we hear these passages and think, well, yeah, because Jesus is God. But to put yourself in the first century and have Jesus say these pretty radical statements, like, wait a minute, you're going to be judging us? Who made you judge? And we see that throughout the scriptures, but I think it's important for us sometimes to place ourselves in that scene. So I'm surprised people weren't like, well, who are you that like anyone who believes in you is invited? Um, like that's like, yeah, what's up with that? Um, I love this question from Leander. Why does Jesus inspire and transform some and threaten and disgust others? I think that's a question we can ask today. He still consider, he still, right, inspires some and disgusts others. Like we have this divisiveness in our world that some are with him and some are against him. And and why is this? Um, I think it's a really good um, topic for journaling and, and for, for meditating on. He tells the sower parable, which is one of my favorites. And I thought it was interesting the way they relayed the message. Like he sent them out into the the crowd. You know, many of us probably have thought like, how did all these people hear Jesus? Sometimes he used um, the natural acoustics of a scene. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, if you go to the Holy Land, uh, part of the Sea of Galilee is called the the Sower, kind of the Sower's Bay. And they believe that's where Jesus put his boat, you know, he got in Simon's boat and talked. And because of the acoustics, he would have been projected um, from the sea into the the, the hillside. Um, and, you know, the Sermon on the Mount could have been the same. But I like this idea that, you know, they're relaying his message. And so we see kind of the priesthood of the, the um, apostles, right, that they don't preach their own message. They preach Christ's. So I doubt that Dallas meant this, but in this scene, we have the first priests being seen as, what are they doing? They're preaching, right? So they're preaching, not their own word, but the word of the Lord. And then what are they doing? They're feeding. We have the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist in this scene. And the, the, the apostles are the priests who are preaching 
and then feeding, not of their own word and not of their own food, but of Christ's word and Christ's miraculous food. So I loved this image that, again, the writers probably didn't mean to depict the, the, the apostles as priests. But um, but I love this this role of how they are feeding, um, feeding the people first with the word of God and then with um, the miraculous bread from heaven. That, of course, is a prefigurement for the true bread from heaven that God that Christ will give us, which is his flesh and blood. Um, notice that Peter was not relaying the message. Uh, so, you know, we, this is all straight from Matthew 11. Um, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Come to me, all who labor and are weary. So we find this in Matthew 11. It's really the theme of the season, Dallas has said. And I thought it was really powerful the way Jonathan um, delivered these lines, that he says it with grief. Um, when he says that, like he, he almost looks like he's about to cry. He's, he's struggling. Why? I think because he knows that not everybody will let him carry their burdens. So he's looking out at Peter. He's looking out at some of the, the people who do have hardened hearts, right? He's told John, the problem in the Decapolis is not my physical safety. It's that these people have hardened hearts. What's the answer for hardened hearts, but faith, right? And so um, you know, he, he's grieved for many reasons. And, but I think one of them is he knows you all are carrying burdens that you're not going to come to me with. There's a good reminder here of the fact that, um, that Jesus gets tired, right? Cause he's fully man. I am, I know there's a lot happening in the chat and I'm really excited that there's a lot happening in the chat and I am going to try to look at some of it when we get through. I just don't want to get too off topic because I know we have a lot to do. So I, I'm really glad you all are chatting and I love it. I love experiencing, um, you know, that you all are sharing. That's what I love about doing it live on YouTube. So this is the backstory then for why there are so many people without food. They needed a backstory for this feeding, why they were driven out of their towns. Again, this seems a bit much for me. This is not the way I would have done it. Um, my biggest beef, so to say, is that they have portrayed the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 as one feeding. So notice he's in the Decapolis, um, which is where the feeding of the 4,000 took place with the Gentiles, but he's feeding them with 12 baskets. He's feeding them with the five loaves and the two fish. So um, this story is a mix of the two. Okay. Um, so the 5,000 we have in Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. So Matthew 14, Mark 6, Luke 9, and John 6. There are certain elements of this story that the feeding of the 5,000 that, that the writers have portrayed. Um, so he says, dismiss them, uh, or sorry, the apostles say, dismiss them, like let them go home, like we don't have food for them. Jesus says, give them some food yourselves. Um, they have five loaves, two fish, 12 baskets. Philip responds and says, like, how are we going to feed all these people? Like, we don't have enough money to feed all these people. All of this comes from the feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 4,000 is found in Matthew 15 and Mark 8. And we have, like, Jesus saying, my heart is moved with pity. They've been with me three days in this. It was two days, but that's okay. Uh, you know, he says, what do you have? We have seven fish, seven loaves and a few fish, and there's seven baskets. So why do I think there should be two scenes of this? Um, some scripture scholars have said, 
there it's really just one feeding. Um, there's one feeding and it's told differently. And so some people are like, well, you know, and I see some of you in the chat saying, you know, it's just that they don't have enough time to portray both. And I understand that. But my my struggle with it is because certain historical um, critical, certain scholars will say it's one feeding that this smacks of that to me. Like, oh, there's just one feeding. The scriptures just told the story twice. Um, now, why do I think there was two feedings? Why do I think there was why do I think there were two separate feedings? Because Jesus himself references the two feedings. First of all, the um, the imagery of the baskets is very particular. So why are there 12 baskets for the feeding of the 5,000? First, he feeds the Jews. Why? Because the feeding of the 5,000 was to the Jews. The Jews were his first audience. And I think we can't forget that, that first Christ goes to the Jews. That's kind of lost in this this season. And I think it's lost for a couple of reasons. I think they really want to emphasize the Gentiles. I think they want to emphasize Peter's struggle with them going to the Gentiles. But Christ first feeds the 5,000 who are Jew, the Jewish people with 12 baskets. Why? Because of the 12 tribes of Israel. The, the feeding of the 4,000 is later in the Decapolis to the Gentiles after Jesus tells the Syrophoenician woman, you can't eat from the table. You're going to eat. And she says, we even eat, even eat, the puppies eat from the scraps of the table. I've talked about this last episode. Then he immediately goes to feed the Gentiles to show them, yes, the kingdom is open to all. I am, my primary ministry is to the chosen people, the firstborn sons. But ultimately, this is going to be open to all of you. So there's a, a particular reason why it's 5,000 and then 4,000. And if we look, they gather seven baskets for the 4,000. Why? Because in Deuteronomy 7.1, we see that there were seven Gentile nations who occupied Canaan alongside Israel. So this is very clear imagery that Jesus has come for the Jews and for those Gentile nations that once occupied Canaan. He's come for all, 12 and 7. And to put them together in one story, I think, loses the power. Now, yes, it would have been very difficult to get 5,000 people and then 4,000 people. Um, I think there's still I, I, I think there's still a way to do it. I would have personally shown the feeding of the 5,000 and then referenced the feeding of the 4,000 in some way. Um, but I, I, I think it loses something to not show the two. It's interesting because in Matthew 16, when the disciples, so they're, they're leaving the Decapolis. So um, Jesus has just fed the 4,000. He then gets in a boat and they go. Um, and when the disciples reach the other side, this is Matthew 16, 5, they'd forgotten to bring any bread, which is hilarious because guess what? They had seven baskets full of bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Doesn't this sound just like the apostles and the chosen? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? <laughs> um, so... I think it's clear that these this was two different feedings. 
and Jesus references them. So, um, so anyway, um, I, I just, I'm not a fan of it. I can see why they did it. I, I don't think it's the end of the world. I don't think it's, you know, any reason to be that, like, I'm not going to get upset. I'm not going to stop watching the chosen. I'm just letting you know what happened in scripture is different than what happened in the chosen. And I think it's important for us to recognize these things that not everything that happens in the chosen happened in scripture. We know that, but that sometimes the chosen takes creative liability or creative license, even in the things that they, when they do depict scripture. And I think just, I just want to point that out. Um, so that's how I, that's how I would do it. Um, so, um, okay. So before we talk more about Simon, um, let's talk quickly about Shmuel, Shmuel, Shmuel. Um, so first of all, so nation is that healer guy that we just met in the last episode and he's going to go report Jesus. Um, I don't think a woman would stop, would stop, uh, nation, on the side of the road and tell him about his paratassels. I don't think that that was weird to me, but I do think Shmuel would notice. And I liked that that was very in character for him to notice and him to care more about what he was wearing. You know, he was very preoccupied with that. That was very Shmuel. Um, so Nashon is jealous of Jesus. So I think his motives are a little different than Shmuel's. And, um, but I think it's important to remember that Shmuel's not a villain. He's just trying to live the way he's been taught. Um, he's trying, he's a good Jew and he is trying to make sure that his, that their customs and their faith are preserved because he has seen what happens in history, in, in Jewish history, when they aren't faithful to the covenant or when they allow, um, you know, people to be swayed away from the covenant. And so Shmuel to me is a very sympathetic character and we're seeing him get even more sympathetic at the end of the episode. You can see Yanni and Shmuel and Ozem in their conversation on the way to the Decapolis that there's a lot of difference of opinion in Jewish in the Jewish um, faith. You still get this today. If anybody says Judaism teaches X, Y, Z, and they seem to be presenting some interpretation of Jewish law, you can say, no, that means some Jews believe, right? There's, there's not this um, you know, there's no like big magisterium in Judaism. And it's important for us to remember that the different Jews have different interpretations of the law, different theology, different approaches to obedience in the law. And we're getting this in that carriage ride. Um, is everybody, anybody else wonder how Atticus is everywhere? I mean, the man is everywhere. How is he all of a sudden outside the temple and he found Nashon's horse? Like the man is everywhere. Um, and he, why does he need Rabbi Shmuel? Like he can find Jesus himself. Like I, I don't, it's just funny. Atticus makes me laugh. There's a couple different interpret uh, ideas of who Atticus might end up being. Um, but I just feel like Atticus is, is everywhere and he's always eating, which I think is funny. I watched an interview and they talked about why he's always eating. Um, I also watched an interview with Shmuel and, um, it's really funny to see Shmuel as a normal guy. Like he looks like he's like, I don't know, a Nebraska football fan and uh, probably is going to go drink some beer and um, grill some hamburgers. And it makes me really laugh because in real life, he probably would walk in here and I'd be like, who are you? And he'd be like, I'm Rabbi Shmuel. And I'm like, no, you're not. Okay. So let's go back to Peter. Um, it's interesting. So uh, Andrew, you know, gives Peter a hard time 
And um, John is a little bit more compassionate, right? John says, you know, Andrew, be give your brother grace, like be gracious to your brother because John knows, right? And I, um, I was watching an interview with them and it, you know, the actor who plays John reminded us that, um, that like, you know, John is the beloved and John, I mean, I was thinking back to John's epistles, right? That John talks about love, 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 love. And there has to be a time where John really learns this. And I think Peter in this episode needed someone to love him. And I think that's why, like, why does Jesus tell John to stay behind? Um, why does he tell John to stay behind? I think it's that he, Peter needed someone to love and John is going to be the beloved that loves and that teaches everyone to love. So, you know, um, John, you know, is, is dialoguing with him. Um, you know, and, and Simon says, you know, if Jesus wants to provide a solution, I'm sure it's going to happen. Um, he's going to provide a solution and it's commented that he doesn't seem to be very happy to be sure of that. And later John says that Peter looks scared. Like, what are you afraid of? And, and Peter says, I'm afraid he'll choose them. And as, as James uh, reminded us at the beginning of the episode so beautifully, like that's, that's Peter's struggle. And that's a lot of people's struggles in this, in this Like, Why is he choosing other people? Why not me? And, um, and so I think this is very real. We could talk a lot about Peter's struggles um, but Peter has faith that Jesus can perform this miracle and, um, and Jesus does obviously perform this miracle, right? Um, it's an interesting, another interesting reflection to think, why does Jesus even need the bread? Right. Um, you know, Jesus tells Telemachus, the boy with the bread, this is enough for me. I can do a lot with this. Um, why didn't he just create bread out of nothing? He's God, right. But that he requires our cooperation. He requires, he wants our cooperation, I should say. He doesn't require, I mean, he does. He doesn't save us without our cooperation. He will not save us without us ourselves. So um, he wants our faith. He wants our cooperation. He wants our bread. And then he will multiply it, right? But we have to surrender our bread so that he can work wonders in our lives. This is a miracle I've always wanted to see happen in real life. Um, I've always wanted to see, like, how did this happen? And this is an interesting way to interpret like how was the bread multiplied you know they distributed amongst the back baskets they covered the baskets up they opened them and their baskets are full and everybody's everybody's reaction so good right if you watch Matthew Matthew like smiles and then he's super confused like every apostle really stayed in character I thought it was interesting that Peter and John's baskets would have been completely empty and yet they still got the bread. So I thought that was interesting. They didn't go over and take parts of the bread, but their baskets were still full. Um, and so what is needed to, to, for this miracle? But I think it's Simon's faith and John's love. Um, you know, John is ready to go with Jesus and defend him. You know, he tells Jesus, like, I, 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 like he wants to be needed, right? And he tells Jesus, like, why do I have to stay behind? I, you know, and so he has to struggle with what Christ needs from him and I think what he his, his what's needed from John is love. Can you after this great scene of you know him feeding them, can't you see that like why they would want to make Jesus king? Right? I mean he just fed them bread out of nowhere and I think a lot of us would be like like come on, let's make him king. Katie, I agree. I love how Thomas was like I've seen something like this before. And um, of course, he's speaking about the wedding feast. 
James, you're right. John and Peter are our sidekicks, right? So in Acts, at the tomb, at the resurrection, we have John and Peter together. And so there has to be a time where this friendship is being nurtured. So it's a great scene. They're going out. They're, you know, um, they're feeding. There's this really interesting question about, um, you know, I was the one to cause their hunger. And so I should be the one to satisfy it. And, you know, I think it goes hand in hand with Jesus not causing suffering, but Jesus allowing suffering. Like Jesus was the reason Dallas points out, Jesus was the reason that these people were hungry. And so can we say that God causes suffering? I don't think we can, but Jesus, but Jesus says later, like he does permit suffering. And John says, it's just like Simon said it would be. Simon knew that Jesus could do this. Is it because he has faith? He lacks trust for sure but does he have faith? And, um, when Peter tips over that basket, you know, Jesus is really visibly grieved. Um, was anybody else worried that Simon was buying a boat to go back to fish? <laughs> I was kind of worried about that. Um, I was like, Oh no, he's going to already go back and fish. This isn't right. But he's getting a boat to solve their problem, which ends up causing a bit more problems, right? Like why didn't they just hunker down? I guess they couldn't just set up camp and hunker down, but, um, but he drags them out on this boat. Um, so Peter says, faith isn't my problem. I think I was a mistake. Um, again, Atticus is somehow there, um, eating again. Someone asks if he's always eating apples. He's not always eating apples. Um, and they talked about how, like, he talked about maybe his interpretation, the actor of like this search and needing to satiate and, um, you know, being, I didn't really, re I didn't really listen to it all, but like, like this idea that like he's, um, you know, this nervous energy, this search, this always, you know, looking for fulfillment. Um, what's going to happen, Shmuel? Right. Um, so Shmuel uh, quotes Psalm 13, and then they go off. Um, Shmuel asks Jesus, "What are you losing?" And um, Jesus says, "Time." I think that was really powerful. Is, is this referring to how many people still don't believe, including his own apostles? You know, he's losing time. I, does it refer to his apostles not having faith? Remember, all the disciples have free will. Um, they all decide for themselves. They're not robots who choose for Jesus. Um, is he just thinking about how many people are hungry for his word and he's running out of time because he knows as word will spread, he his hour is coming? Um, you know, that's one of the reasons I think Christ says not to tell anybody because the messianic secret is to, is to keep people from spreading the word so that he's not arrested and, and killed. And so he doesn't have a lot of time left. And I, this grieves him. Um, he's losing time. So now we have the great scene on the water. Um, and um, Jackie says, I'm still not fully understanding why Peter is required. He didn't want to be there and he's so detached. Um, so I think Peter's required because this whole thing really was about Peter. Um, Peter is the leader of the apostles. Peter is, Jesus needed Peter not to be detached and he needed Peter's faith. He needed Peter's trust, you know, for his mission to continue. He needs his people's faith. He needs the apostles' faith. How can he have the faith of others if he doesn't have the faith of the apostles? And so I think Peter needs to be shaken up. 
And so this mission of the Gentiles, I think, was really a mission to Peter, in a sense. And he was needed because it was time for him to make a decision. And it was time for him to either come back or, you know, he, he needed to be confronted with this choice. I put beside before you a choice, life or death. Um, and this is, this is Peter's choice. They, in filming, called this next scene the wow scene, walking on water. They never talked about it publicly because they wanted it to be a surprise. And it does, it does follow in Matthew 14. This does follow the feeding of the 5,000. And so I think some of us knew, like, as soon as it was dark and as soon as the boats, it's like, okay, Peter's going to walk on water. Um, John, I think it's interesting. John's the first to see Jesus. Did you notice that? And I have to wonder if it's because he had the eyes to see because he has the eyes of love that John is the obedient one, right? He's the one that stayed behind despite him not wanting to. He's the one that loved Peter. And I just think it makes sense for him to be the first one. He's going to be the first one that sees the effects of the resurrection and and believes besides Mary Magdalene. So I think it was beautiful that John was, um, you know, was the, the first to see. Um, I think the walking on water was so powerful because it wasn't just Peter being in the boat, being like, if it's you, come have me walk on the water. And that's often how we see it, right? Um, we see it as like they're tossed around in the waves and Peter just, you know, sanguine, rash Peter's like, you know, ask me to come out on the water. But this was, uh, we because of the backstory, I think this made the ask much more powerful. Um, Because again, Peter says he has faith. Where does Peter's faith fall short in what that actually means in his everyday life? Peter says he has faith, but he's not able to walk the walk, right? He's not able, he is confused, he's hurt, he's wounded. He doesn't accept who Jesus wants to be in his life. He doesn't know what Jesus wants to be in his life. And so this is where his faith is put to the test. And, um, you know, it's, it's not about trusting that you're not going to sink in the water. It's about trusting that the Lord has you. It's about trusting that, you know, even though I don't agree with you, Lord, even though I don't feel you, Lord, even though I don't understand you, Lord, I'm still going to walk. I'm still going to follow you. And so Jesus has asked Peter to follow him. He's going to ask him to follow him a few more times. And this is Peter, this is Jesus saying, if you really are following me, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take walking on this water. It, and, and I think this is a really powerful moment for us to reflect on because we aren't going to be asked to walk on stormy water with Jesus. Like this story in our lives is not literally going to be lived out. Um, we are not going to be asked to do that as disciples. You are not going to go out on the Cumberland River or, you know, the, the, you know, some lake and be asked to walk on water. You are going to be asked to trust the Lord when you don't feel him. You are going to be asked to trust the Lord when you don't understand what he's doing. You are going to be asked to trust the Lord when it's difficult. And so I think that made that scene so powerful. Again, what I think the chosen is, is a way for us to reflect on our own lives and see us ourselves in the apostles. Jesus is going to ask us to make that same act of faith that Peter had to make. And so, you know, he sees, he's like, when your own person has problems, you're not there. 
And so Jesus then gives him that come to me and adds, come to you, you know, um, you who are labored and weary. And Peter says, like, faith has never been my problem, but you're healing, you're healing total strangers. And Jesus says, why do you think I allow trials? Because they prove the genuineness, genuineness of your faith. This is strengthening you and Eden. What's Jesus showing? But that he, just like he said, I see you to Eden. I see you. He, he hasn't been told about Eden, but he's telling Peter, I see you and I see Eden and I know what you're going through. They prove the genuineness of your faith. Look up 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7 sometime. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 7. This is the message that Peter gives us in his first epistle. That um, in this you rejoice, that now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire. We had, remember last episode, we had the shepherds calling his faith more valuable than gold. More precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we have this beautiful little Easter egg of First Peter 1, 3. Of course, he, um, he takes his eyes off Jesus. You know, that's always been Simon's problem. He's always worried about the details, right? Who am I in the group? When is this going to happen? Do we have protection? You know, notice he's even ordering the apostles around when it comes time for um, Jesus tells the apostles to go and, and relay his message through the crowd. Peter steps in and says, Big James Z, stay here for protection. He's always the one thinking of these details. He's always the fixer. He's always the protector. And Jesus is like, no, like, look at me. I've got this. Don't take your eyes off me. Don't worry about those things. Worry about me. Um, that's why Eden's suffering is so difficult for Peter, because he's the protector. He's the fixer. And this all happened to Eden under his watch. And so he sank because God has to be the fixer and the protector and the, the like, and sometimes we disagree with how God fixes and how God protects. And he sinks because he wants to be the fixer. He wants to be the protector. And he's not agreeing with how Jesus is fixing and protecting and healing. But sometimes we have to sink. Um, sometimes we have to sink. And God allows us to sink. That's really hard. Um, sometimes God allows us to sink so that he can raise us up so that he can save us. Um, Jesus says, I let people go hungry, but I feed them. He lets us sink, but he saves us. Um, you know, Eden has been strengthened as well. And Eden prays that, you know, Lord, don't let go of Simon. You know, before I think she was questioning Simon following Peter a little bit, right? Like why Simon away? Why is Simon following Jesus? Sorry, did I say Simon following Peter? Um, you know, I think she was questioning, like, why does Simon follow Jesus? Why is he away? And, but now her strength, her faith is strengthened in Jesus. It's beautiful. I think that she is healed through the mikvah that her husband fixed. I think there's something there. Um, her husband fixed the mikvah and now she's found healing through it, ultimately through our Lord. I think it's interesting. Dallas didn't want to do the walking on water scene because he didn't want people to focus on the effects. He didn't, he, he said he doesn't want to do any of the miracles that are going to make people focus on the effects rather than the message. And, um, I have to admit, I focused on the effects and I thought, Oh, that looks a little hokey. 
Um, you know, Jesus looked like he was standing on a raft. Well, guess what? Jonathan was because Jonathan's not Jesus and can't walk on water. Um, if you watch the after show, they show them filming this in this tank that they found in Louisiana. And there's this insane story of how they found this tank. The tank wasn't operational. They had to like basically like fix the tank up. They were painting it like the day that they started filming. And so it was, I think it's important for us to remember that um, there are going to be special effects that maybe we don't like, but it's really powerful. It's a really powerful scene. So Dallas was convinced he also didn't want to do the scene because he didn't think he had a background to it. He didn't, he didn't want to do it. He wanted to do it and have it, um, you know, mean something and say something. And um, he got talked into it. And I think it really does fit. I think he did have the background to it. The ending with Psalm 77, I think is so powerful you know, it's referencing the waters and obviously it's referencing the Red Sea because of when it was written. But now Jesus has fulfilled that and Jesus brings us through the Red Sea as well. Um, again, Jesus isn't going to ask you to walk through a sea, but he is going to ask you to trust him and he is going to ask you to walk out on water in different ways. And this was really Peter, not just walking on the Sea of Galilee, but Peter being willing to trust that Jesus has him, that Jesus sees him and that Jesus is in control. Um, we end with David and Bathsheba. I think it's interesting. She's pregnant. Um, I don't think it's apparent which child she's pregnant with, but if she's pregnant with her first child, it's a child she's going to lose. Um, so she loses the first child that she conceived with David under in, when David um, committed adultery. And so the way she rubbed her belly, I thought, is this the baby that she's going to lose soon after birth? Um, I think it would be fitting because she too will grieve the way that um, Eden grieves. We have a bunch of, of storylines that aren't tied up, right? We still don't have the, the Gaius storyline tied up. We don't have the John the Baptist storyline tied up. And we see them at the end. Now in the scripture storyline, in the actual events of scripture, both of these events already happened. Both of these events happened before the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but I, I suppose in you know, the license that they're able to take artistic license, you know, we, we are seeing this continued suffering and this challenge to trust the Lord in suffering and ongoing suffering. Um, so I think it's really, really powerful. Um, Dan says he's combined the two storm scenes also, right? Like, so in the walking on the water, it simply says that the the storm subsided when Jesus got in the, you know, when, when Peter was rescued, the storm subsided and then they reached the end. Um, whereas he cries out to the storm and stills it similar to the story when he's asleep in the boat. Um, so they did kind of combine those stories. And I think that makes sense. I have less problems with that than I do the feeding of the five and the feeding of the four. So that's our very long episode. I am going to scan the chat, um, but I'm going to say goodbye to the podcast. I'm going to wrap up um, and I'm excited that, you know, we have season four coming. We'll see when they start filming. But as soon as season four starts, we'll start these episodes up again. And who knows, we may have something in between. So stay tuned. Um, but it's been a joy. There's a lot to reflect on. And it's been a joy to to be with you and to reflect on you. Um, and uh, and we'll, we'll see what season four holds. So I am going to reflect on the, I'm going to look through the chat and, um, I might not cut this out of the podcast. We'll see if, if, if there's something still to talk about, we'll continue the, uh, the, um, I just never know if this is annoying for you podcast listeners when you can't see the chat and we're just kind of, um, continuing to talk. 
I'll also say that I'm looking forward to seeing some of you in a, a little bit. So some of you know, I have a scripture study, a community for scripture study called Living One John One. And in that scripture study community, as part of the membership community, we study scripture every month together. And just so by chance, we're looking at the call of Peter in Matthew 16 later tonight in that in that Bible study. So if you're interested in Living One John One, um, I'll put the links later in the the, the YouTube uh, comments here. I'll put them in the podcast that you can join Living One John One. And again, part of the membership community is an online Bible study once a month. Tonight, we will be looking at Peter. So I look forward to seeing some of you in a little bit talking more about Peter, but based on scripture rather than uh, the chosen. So there's a lot in the chat. Um, thank you all. This is really, really great. Um, it's been a really good discussion. It's been really neat to see everybody in the chat. Um, that's interesting. Katie says a friend was saying this might be the first season where Dallas knows he's going to get another season. They've not always known they've been able to continue. So we see cliffhangers. That's, that's a good point. So it's become clear. So season five is being written right now and season five is going to be Holy week. So next season, he's already said is going to be pretty dark because we see, you know, the passion coming close. Season five is going to be Holy Week. The crucifixion is going to be in season six. So season five is going to be pretty heavy because we're just going to have Holy Week, which makes sense. There's going to be so many different characters. He points, he pointed out in an interview, you know, with Passover, you have everybody coming to Jerusalem. So it's a way we're going to see all the characters, regardless of where they lived, we're going to have all these characters in Jerusalem at the same time. And so I think season five is going to be pretty, pretty packed. Um, there's some conversation about um, what did, what did um, Eden say in the mikvah, whether she said, don't go let go of Simon um, or don't let go, like, don't let him go away from me. I was thinking it was asking Jesus, don't let him go. Like, I thought she was praying that Jesus would hold on to Peter. Um, but I guess it could be interpreted lots of different ways. Because remember, she is, yeah, somebody pointed out she is praying for Peter during that time. Um, yeah, it, it was just a really powerful scene when he says, don't let me go, don't let me go, don't let me go, don't let me go. Um, this is very reminiscent of the Young Song Kim painting, The Hand of God. Um, several people reached out to me and said, have you seen the painting? This is very reminiscent of it. And it is. Um, my mom says, I have a problem with the story because nowhere in scripture do we see a big struggle with Peter's faith. It's a construction of Dallas, not until the betrayal in the courtyard. And this somehow cheapens that betrayal. Um, I think that that is an interesting point. Um, does this take away from that betrayal later? Or could we say, um, does this kind of strengthen that. I mean, like, does it show how even more devastating it was because Peter keeps struggling and going and coming and back and going and coming back. And he is a sanguine, um, you know, temperamental people. I, I haven't thought about that in that terms. I have to admit of it cheapening the betrayal in the garden. Um, but I know that that betrayal is going to be hard it, to watch and it'll be interesting next season, what role Peter starts to take before the passion. Um, but I think if, as long as they show the resurrection and then they do the resurrection appearances, I think it makes, you know, John 21 really powerful of the re, um, you know, the, the commissioning of Peter once again, where he's once again told, follow me. 
Um, but you're right. Is this too early for Peter to be, um, you know, doubting Jesus? It'll be interesting to see how, how they deal with that. Um, um, Katie says he has faith when things are going well. He struggles when things aren't going so well. And it's important to remember the disciples are still young in their faith. They haven't been with Jesus very long. That is important. You know, somebody said something to, to, um, to Eden about it being two years. And so again, I struggle with this timeline and seeing how, you know, how different this was. Um, Renee says, I wonder if Atticus could see what was happening on the sea. There was an episode or there wasn't um, a thought. Somebody asked Dallas and Dallas said, he thinks if Atticus could have seen it, he wouldn't have left, but he saw something. Um, but again, why, why is Atticus everywhere? Atticus is everywhere. Um, so, okay. Um, I'm going to wrap this up, but this is really, really great. I love how, how active the chat has been. Um, and yes, Katie, there are so many timeline suggestions. Um, interesting. Katie says this trial makes his faith stronger because of the scripture line. The more you have to be forgiven, the more you love. And so he is strengthened in, in faith. Okay. Excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. And I'm sure there's a lot to talk about. You can always reach out to me on Instagram too. I've had some great conversations with some of you over on social media, Facebook and Instagram to continue some of these conversations. So Woo, it was a big episode. Thank you so much. God bless. And I will talk to you soon.